Hello, everybody, and welcome to Fortress Comic News, episode 341.1. I'm your only host, Chris, and another great point one episode. We haven't done one in a while. I've been trying to calm down on the amount of interviews for my own sanity, but I couldn't turn this one down because it's one of my favorite guests to get on this show. He really wanted to come on and chat, and... uh I couldn't say no. I just couldn't do it. So without further ado, you've already read the title, so you know Charlie Stickney joined me to chat about Kickstarter, indie comic creators, a bunch of different stuff inside the independent comic realm. And then most importantly, we chat about his Kickstarter for Glarian issue three. That's currently running on Kickstarter and you can find in the show notes down below. It's an awesome conversation. We go on for almost an hour and a half. I just, I can't say enough how much I love Charlie, love talking to him, and uh, just so happy and blessed that he's willing to come on, chat to someone like me, like us, and uh, share his wisdom with everybody. So I hope you all enjoy it. Just to get it out of the way, you know the drill. You can find me at Fortress Chris on the social media networks. If you want to follow my Substack completely free, it's chriscomicscorner.substack.com. And if you want to follow the show, it's at fortresscomics underscore on Twitter and fortresscomicnews.com. Five-star reviews, like, subscribe, share, comment down below on YouTube. Great ways to support the show, help us grow, do all that. It means the world to me, and I greatly appreciate it. And there's also patreon.com slash fortresscomics if you want to go there as well. So without further ado, here's my interview with Charlie Stickney. All right, everybody. I've got another very special guest, a returning special guest. Very welcome back to the show, Charlie Stickney. Welcome, Charlie. Ah, thanks, Chris. I love being on your show. Um, I mean, like, there's sometimes you do the podcast circuit and you're like, I need to do this show. And then there are other times like you do a podcast circuit and you're like, I am excited to be on a show. And I'm always excited to see you and to hang out and talk comics with you. Uh, that makes me happy because I, I love when you come on the show because I feel like I learn something new. Every time we talk on the show, every time we talk off air, um, you're just one of those dudes that knows so much about the industry, has been in the in the trenches with Scout and then now on your own doing your thing. It just, yeah, you're one of my favorite people in comics right now. So I, I appreciate that. And I, I assume that you're in a good mood. I see the, the Eagles hat. Is, is that the Eagles hat on? So uh, they're off to a great start this year. Congrats on that. Yeah, a little disappointing on the Phillies this year, but uh, yeah. I, I did the the Homer Simpson meme, and I went right back in the bush and came out with my Phillies hat or my Eagles hat. So <laughs> there you go. I, I wasn't going to bring that up. You know, <laughs> we always try to lead with the best foot forward. Uh, but uh, but but you have to you have to um, love being in a position where you can have two or three teams from your your city being potentially in the finals in you know and 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 the sixers uh have have a chance again this year uh you have the the reigning mvp so it's uh you know it's not a bad time to be a philly sports fan i i say a lot i've been a spoiled sports fan because the phillies have been really good most of my life you know there's down years and whatnot but they won a world series 2008 uh and then the eagles have been pretty much relevant since i was in middle school so wonderful place 
Yeah, like I'm I'm spoiled rotten in terms of sports realm, so I try not to complain too much, but I do get pretty angry at those and the losses, especially Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> and now that we've lost half of our comic people, let's bring it back to comics. <laughs> I say all the time, there is there is definitely a emerging there in terms of those realms. Like, dude, my my fantasy football league takes place in a comic store. Like, oh, that's great. Yeah, that. And and I'm I'm just gonna come out here and be me. Like that's one of the things I love. It goes comics and then football. Like it's so if if you don't like listen to it, I guess I don't know what to tell you. But <laughs> well, I, I will say that like the thing that I learned um, when when I sort of came back to comics uh, was I was just shocked how many comic fans were into wrestling. Right, like like I yeah. I, I, I was into comics growing up, but like wrestling was just that crazy world that I had no interest in. It wasn't really a sport. It wasn't really a performance. It was its own thing. And, and now it's like, oh, comic book people love wrestling too. And I guess it's kind of like superheroes and there's their stories and uh, you know the, the dynamics of, of the, the saga and the soap opera. So like, yeah, I, I get it. I get it. But like, it's, it was just sort of, I had to take that in. Yeah, it's, it's a soap opera with uh, giant muscular men and women in tights fighting each other. Like, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. You have uh, villains, you have heroes. Yeah, and then some go from villain to hero and vice versa. Like, yes. Yeah. I get it too, but I, I, I've tried watching it a few times. I'm just like, I don't, I don't understand it, but it, it, it's each their own. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if it works for you, wonderful. Uh, you know, I am um, just, you know, to, to show my colors, I, I grew up in new England, so I'm a new England sports fan. Um, when I was young, we had some good times. Then there was a very long stretch, uh, like being out in the desert, um, as, a, as a Patriots fan. And then when I moved to LA, uh, th this young man named uh, Tom Brady took over the team. And boy, we like for, for a week or two, we were devastated because Drew Bledsoe was gone. And then things changed. So like, I, I know that ride of, of, of living in the moment and being like, oh my goodness, we have a good team. And even if we're a little nervous, we're nowhere near as nervous as the people who have to play our team, right? And uh, so, you know, enjoy that ride. I hope it lasts, uh, you know, at least half as long as it did for the New England sports fans. Yeah, I, I hope. Obviously, I hope so as well. Yeah. <laughs> so we did we did the sports talk, everybody. Yes. So let, let, let's definitely move on to comics. Yes. We were talking a little off air about some stuff and there's so much going on in all of comics and we on the show, we talk about everything that's going on in the industry weekly. So uh, I keep up with a lot of this, and hopefully the listeners gather something from my thoughts on it. But I'd love to start with, you're now in the realm of Kickstarter. Like, that's your kind of your bread and butter, where you're living and breathing. How do you feel about the service today, as opposed to when you started however many years ago? Well, so I think, um, you know, for people like let's just assume your audience knows Kickstarter, mm -hmm. but if they don't, at this point, it's become the third biggest bucket for comics. You have, uh, in terms of sales channels, you have uh, the direct market, which is one very large sales channel. You have the bookstore market, which is a very large sales channel, and you have Kickstarter, which you know, I mean, you could say that there's also the digital marketplace, but I I really don't feel for a lot of independent publishers. It's anything but really advertising, uh, like just the amount of revenue that's generated, at least, you know, when I was a scout was could buy you a cup of coffee. 
versus, you know, versus these other channels, and especially for independent creators, Kickstarter has become such a big thing. So, you know, for me, even though I was at Scout for a while, before and afterwards, and, and in the middle, I was always building an audience on Kickstarter. And the platforms had a lot of evolution. Um, when I first started looking at it and building my first project, it was 2016. You know, we launched in 2017, and that's where I started building my brand of White Ash, of Clarion, and all of that. Uh, at that time, it was still a little bit of the Wild West. There were some good projects, there were some bad projects, but there were still plenty of people who were there because they couldn't get a publisher. And so it was by default. Um, and, and, and what's evolved over the last seven to eight years is Kickstarter has gone from the default, I'm not good enough minor leagues, to the place where a lot of creators who own their own projects are choosing to go over publishers. Um, you know, I mean, on, on the high end, you look at something like Neil Gaiman, who just did the Good Omens Kickstarter, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, he talks very openly about it. He was looking at the publishing deals that were being offered, and I would have thought he would have gotten an amazing publishing deal. But he said he basically had tepid interest from publishers to take that book out, which, again, is very short-sighted if that was the case. And he decided to do it this way. And, you know, obviously, it was a huge success. I think it raised over $3 million on Kickstarter, which is good <laughs> you know, for, for, for any comic in any, you know, any market. Like, that's a lot of money. And in this case, 90% you know, of it went to Neil and his team. So again, good, good choice. Um, so on the high end, you have creators like Neil Gaiman who, is, who are choosing Kickstarter over other places. You have creators like uh, Michael myself who have built a large audience there who, who choose that. Um, and, and, and part of that is the industry right now is going through, it's, it's going, through a, going through things. And, and, and by those things, I mean, you know, it's going to be readjusting because during COVID, there was a huge boom. Um, a lot of people were stuck at home. They had disposable income. They started buying things. The collector's market boomed again. And so there was a lot of expansion that maybe was not being supported by the, the normal levels of the marketplace. So a lot of shops overextended, a lot of publishers overextended. Um, and, and now we are going through things where, where the market is recalibrating itself. And there were also a lot of publishers that came into the comic space over the last 10 years who were not relying on publishing revenue as the source uh, to keep their companies liquid. Uh, they had giant venture capitalist funds because their mandate was more develop products that we can then sell as IP to film and television and the streamers. So in addition to like the COVID bubble having popped and stores kind of returning and customers figuring out how much they can spend now, um, student loan payments restarting and all of these things with the economy that like there's less, you know, the economy is a little bit less flush with disposable income. On top of that, we had the writer's strike, which has been followed by the actor's strike. So you've had six months where the studios, and, and even in preparation of that, were kind of tightening their spigot in terms of what they were optioning. So a lot of that IP money that was supposedly going to sustain these companies got turned off. And now these venture capitalist funds are looking at it and saying, you know what, we're not really getting a return on that investment, so they're cutting off these publishers. We're not giving you round three of funding, because round one and two didn't do what it was intended, 
there's no other franchises out there that are the Avengers, right? You know, mm-hmm. like in, in terms, like you just like DC has their universe, but they would have had their universe regardless. Marvel has their universe. How many independent hits that are built from these smaller companies that were funded by venture capitalist companies are taking off? And it's really none. So like some of that money is being pulled back. And these publishers who never had a business model that was sustainable by the amount of titles they were selling in the marketplace are now hurting. Um, and, 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 you know, also because before that, they really didn't have to worry about um, sustainability from publishing revenues. They were pumping out lots of books because all of them were lottery tickets. So the market was being flooded with too much content. Uh, you know, normally in, in, a, in a healthy ecosystem, the publishers put out what they can sell and the stores pay for what they can sell. And it's a nice, like there's a nice sort of cycle there because the market slowly grows or contracts based on demand from customers. So with the publishers putting out all these titles, the stores had to assume that there were people there to buy them because otherwise how could these store, these publishers afford to put out all this content? And so they were going all in on these titles and getting too many. And so then their shelves were filled with books that wouldn't sell. So anyway, we're having like um, this come to Jesus moment right now where the stores are like, hey, we can't afford to keep doing this. They're pulling back with what they're buying. Um, you know, a lot of stores, if it comes to an independent title or even some Marvel in DC, if it's not Batman family or X-Men or Avengers, they're, they're just ordering to pull, which I, I'm sure your customer and most of your viewers know, but it's like, they will only order that book if someone walks into their store and says, I want this issue. Um, so the numbers have dropped dramatically in terms of um, what stores are ordering, particularly from the smaller publishers. So, you know, where a number one might have sold anywhere from three to 8,000, now it's selling from two to 4,000. And a number two is selling anywhere from 700 to 1,500 to 2,000 at, at some of the smaller publishers. And that's not a sustainable model. All of a sudden, those issues go from having small to medium profits to either no profits, breaking even, to in the red for every issue. So, Again, there's market contraction. And with those numbers declining, what it's causing a lot of creators to do is say, wait a minute, if I can't make money in the direct marketplace, where can I make money? And a lot of them are saying, oh, that Kickstarter place that people have been talking about for the last couple of years, that's where I'm going to go to make money. And so over the last three to five months, we've seen a surge in the number of projects that are on Kickstarter. And, and that has ballooned up. Um, I was just looking this week, it was, bub- you know, it was going between like 340 and 350 projects on Kickstarter this month. Um, and if you think about that in terms of relationship to the direct market, the direct market averages between like 350 and 450 new titles every month. So we're, we're talking about something that's almost the exact same size of the direct market in terms of the amount of content that's being put out. Um, and if you look at total number of covers as, as units sold Kickstarter versus the direct market, there are more unique entries because there's so many projects that have anywhere between six and 25 covers and, you know, and only dynamite does, does that kind of craziness in the direct market. Um, there are actually in terms of like individual comics that you could buy that are unique that are coming out in a month. There is now more content on Kickstarter on a monthly basis than the direct market, which is just crazy. Uh, 
So uh, that said, I think Kickstarter has reached a saturation point where some of those pro, you know, it's a little bit harder, especially for new creators to break into Kickstarter. Um, there's a little bit of the market um, eating itself on Kickstarter where just overall some of the numbers are down. Now, I always thought that Kickstarter never had a cap because theoretically, anytime a new project launches, that creator is bringing in um, their own set of backers and fans. And so the entire marketplace expands for every project that you have that's live on Kickstarter. You know, Unlike the um, direct marketplace where if Marvel puts out 10 titles, that doesn't mean there's 10 new fans that come into the store. You know, it's marketing to the same fan base. However, what's changed, this is, you know, going back to another thing that's changed on Kickstarter, is it used to be a, a sole creator would launch anywhere from one to, to four titles a year, maybe five Kickstarters a year. And each of those creators were usually just doing different books. They, they used to be just trades or one shots. And then people like me came along who were crazy and said, I'm going to serialize on Kickstarter, like the direct market. And so that over the last couple of years has become a thing. But the newer thing that's happened is you have creators who have built large enough brands on Kickstarter where they're doing multiple projects a month. They have one or two different um, publishing labels on Kickstarter or different accounts. And so rather than a creator doing four Kickstarter projects a year, now they're doing three every two months or four every two months. So rather than them bringing in new fans, now their projects are outnumbering the number of fans they're bringing in. So that's that's where I think you know we're starting to hit a little bit of regression because it's not more projects equals more fans. It's more projects just equals more projects. And so now you have more content on the platform and less new blood being brought in to support the content. Well, I, I definitely still see out there in the wild, like there's... There's always been this the split of like direct market comic fans and Kickstarter comic fans. And then it's a Venn diagram of somewhere in the middle is people like me who do both. Yeah. But you definitely have people on both sides of that who are like, I don't that's I don't do that or I don't do that. And I I think it's I don't know, maybe you could, but I think it's um I don't see some of them ever crossing over because it reminds me so much of everything in today's world, but I'll bring it to something uh, less serious like video games where you've got your PlayStation fans and your Xbox fans and they hate each other for no reason, but their plastic box is better than the other one. And I see that in comics too, where it's like, well, it's a Kickstarter book. And I was like, and for instance, with your book, White Ash, I'm like, yeah, it's a Kickstarter book, but it's going to be on, it was on the shelf through Scout at one point, and then it's a direct market book. So what's the difference between that one and that one? Because it's the same book. It just has a different cover and has a different label on it. And they can never really answer that, but they'll buy the Scout one. So it's it's weird to me, and I just wonder if you'll ever get some of them to cross over. In your case, the direct market people to get into Kickstarter. Um, yeah. And some people said to me, and I fought, I personally fought against this and still am not a fan of it. But when Boom and Valiant, sorry to call you out, uh, came to Kickstarter and said, here's our big Kickstarter campaign. And I was told that was going to drag them in. And it just seemed to not do it to me. Uh, maybe you disagree, but. 
Well, like, look, the Valiant is, is a separate issue because I think uh, Valiant has not even delivered their Kickstarter, right? <laughs> that's, yeah. Like, like yeah. That's, that, that's not helpful. Like, you're not going to bring any new fans in when you're like, here's this Valiant book and then, and then we don't deliver it. Um, I, I think there's a couple of things. Uh, people become tribalized no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. I think it's just human nature. You feel safe. You know what you understand. Uh, when, when I had White Ash out, um, I was doing, you know, I was doing a lot of the stores here, doing signings at a lot of stores here in LA. And there were plenty of people who were not, you know, didn't even want to look at me because it wasn't a Marvel or DC book. And that's yeah. all they bought, right? They don't deal with those image, you know, the, the indies, even the image, like, like that's, that's not real comics. Real comics is Marvel and DC. So you have segmentation, even in the direct market. Like, yeah. I, like I had a guy who came over, was like, this looks really cool. He's like, your art is great. I only buy Marvel and DC. Like he said that to me. I was like, okay, <laughs> like you do you, you know, you be happy with the characters that you're happy with. So I, I, I don't think that, you know, polarized segmentation is anything that you can do that much about. However, um, I think one of the things that that's great is the Kickstarter marketplace initially in a lot of ways sprang up to support the kind of stories and books that were not selling well in the direct market. So, so basically a lot of things other than superhero books. And there were more LGBTQ books. There were, you know, more POC books than, you know, that, that were focused on, on those things. And, and for a lot of people who, who can't make it to a comic book shop because of where they live or they don't feel welcome in their comic book shop, it provided another avenue and a, a type of stories to create. So, um, so I, I think, you know, just inherently in how the market evolved, it's a different type of content in terms of its orientation. It also has a lot at this. The other thing that's really happened is you have a lot of these high-end art books, hardcovers, and things that go on Kickstarter because they're a little bit more of a premium price point. And the direct market is built around that disposable $3.99 or $4.99 issue. So one is like this disposable I can get four books for 20 bucks versus I'm going to get the premium version of one book for 20 bucks or, you know, one hardcover. So it, they are hitting different markets. Uh, so I think where that Venn diagram is going to cross are, are for the consumers who want things from different buckets. Like if, if you are someone who loves Marvel and DC and you're willing to have three or four indies, which are the biggest ones, maybe you like Hellboy and Saga or you like, Hellboy and you liked Invincible or Walking Dead, like if that's if that's your entire pull, you're probably not going to come to Kickstarter. But someone who is, you know, dabbling in a lot of the independents, um, I think those people will find that they will find a lot of content that they really like on Kickstarter, especially as more of those creators are moving over because they realize it's harder and harder to be profitable in the direct market through some of those smaller publishers. And if they want to tell those stories and sustain them, Kickstarter is the place they're probably going to go. Yeah, I, I, I always wonder a little bit about that because you see the old model was you make your bones. I'm just going to use Marvel as the answer, sure. for instance. But you make your bones at Marvel. I think of Ed Brubaker and uh, that crowd. Um, and then once you're done doing your big Marvel books and you make your splash, you make your name, you then go over to an image at that time. And that's when you can make your living off of your independent book. And then I 
just to keep with the Ed Brubaker uh, example, because it's a creator I love and I've followed him a lot. He even said at one point, he's now doing the uh, OGNs. And he even said that, listen, I put out a new criminal. Number one sells X and number two sells nothing compared to number one. <laughs> so if everybody's going to just buy it once and then drop it, I'm just going to put out the OGN and make you buy the whole series. And I think Brubaker could do that. Um, he's a big enough name, and we all know that him and Sean Phillips together is magic. Yes. But um, let's pick on a friend. Uh, Travis Gibb couldn't go out and say, hey, buy my trade of this at $25. Trust me, it's good. It probably is. I love Travis, but it, he's not at Brubaker. <laughs> Right, right. And, and, and like what, what Brubaker has is he has a fan base yeah. and he has the bookstore market. And so a lot of those books sell really well through the bookstore market. They sell well through Amazon. And so he's going to move enough units in that market to, to make back his investment, to make sure he and Sean Phillips are paid for the time they put into it. And that's the kind of book that will sell. You know, you know it's an evergreen product. You know, as people get into Brubaker, they're going to want to go back through his whole library and see the other things that he has. Um, but yeah, like the direct market has become really tough after the first couple of issues to sustain the series. And this is another thing where the paradigm of Kickstarter works a little bit better because every time you launch a product, like, like right now I have Glarian 1 through 3 that's live on Kickstarter. So anyone who's new to what I do can immediately catch up on this mini series from the beginning. Uh, and, and comic book shops don't have the shelf space to be able to have, you know, one through three, and they don't want to overorder one through three because they don't want to be stuck with all these number twos if they don't sell, right? Yes. And so quickly, as the series goes along, there's maybe some ones left over, but now you have ones and threes on the shelf. And like, I don't want to, you know, if I can't get number two, do I want that series? Uh, so it's it's again, it's just a different dynamic. And way, you know, and paradigm for selling comics. And so, like, I, I have Glarian 1 through 3. I also, as Glarian is a spinoff of the larger White Ash universe, I have a package where you can catch up with all of the White Ash books and all of the Glarian books. And so, almost like manga, where, where it's easy, here's volume 1, here's volume 2, here's volume 3. Creators who are doing well on Kickstarter who are serializing usually make it so anybody new to it can catch up from the very beginning and get everything. Um, and that's really hard to do with single issue comics through the direct market. So it's just a, it's a different way that the markets function. And so it, you're able to tell longer series on Kickstarter. You know, at, at this point, my, my White Ash series is the equivalent of about a 20 issue run through the direct market because the books are so big and, and the things that we've done. You know, and like when you think about the number of creators who could do an independent comic, for 20 issues at this point, there aren't that many, right? You know, you know, Brian K. Vaughn can do it. Um, Scott Snyder can do it. But like, you know, when you start going down with the list of even at image, how many creators are going to be able to be sustainable for a 20 issue series? Maybe there are 10 right now that are working in the market that could do it. But on Kickstarter, there's a bunch. You look at someone like Pat Shand, um, who has his destiny in New York empire. You know, at this point he's done six, uh, trades that all range from 150 to 200 plus pages. And, you know, like that's a lot 
for an independent creator just to be telling one story and you know it's sustainable and 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 so when it can be sustainable for an independent creator when you're looking at the different markets you know there is it, it's something to really consider what kind of story do you want to tell do you want to st- tell a four issue mini series is your goal to get on the shelf space in the direct market for collectors to see you to use this as a stepping stone to maybe get that big two work that you really want to do like then yeah by all means go do that but if you have this story that you want to tell that you think is going to be at minimum 12 issues or or 15 issues or 30 issues or in my case like 60 issues um you know you you need to find the market that's going to support that and it can be done in a place like kickstarter and and you see um there there are numerous books that are going past 10 15 issues of the same series from independent creators that no one probably has heard of and that's totally fine they're telling their stories they're being able to do it in a way and you know and long term more people are going to find them they're like oh my god this mesotonic high is on issue 22 of this series and he puts out a new one every two months this is great like there's a whole universe i can get into here um and and, and again from creators that a lot of people in comics don't know is the big names they're able to sustain series in ways that the big names can't so you know, something to consider. Do you think that, so stick with Pat Shand and, and Destiny, do you think it's smart for someone like that to go out and then ink the publishing deal and get it in the direct market? And do you think that that leads to anything on the Kickstarter end, or is that just an extension of the book's reach? Well, I, I think, yes, there's definitely some that cycles around uh, where if, like Pat does have a deal through uh, Black Mask, and Black Mask has been putting out those trades as single issues. Mm-hmm. And it's been something they've been doing. And he's actually landed a TV show because of Black Mask's um, you know, multimedia contracts. And so there is a Destiny New York TV show that's in development. You know, knock on wood that that one down the road will, will get made. Uh, so so I, I do think there's definitely some benefit in having things out in both markets. I know when White Ash was coming out in the direct market through Scout, we definitely increased our our brand awareness in a way that helped you know going back to the kickstarters and people coming to the kickstarter may have seen us on the shelves of the stores or just by the nature of having that direct market publisher putting their stamp of approval on it real or otherwise gave a validity to the project that might not have been there without it at one point and you know and i think that really helped me grow the brand for a little while um I, what I would say is if a creator has been doing things through Kickstarter, Indiegogo, whatnot, or whatever their direct-to-consumer platform is for a while, and a publisher approaches them, you know, they need to be very careful about the deal they sign. And remember, what you're doing already is just as valid. You are publishing your own work. You are building a fan base. People love you, right? And, and then you built something sustainable, and that don't be attracted, you know, don't be blinded by the allure of having those books on the shelves and the stores to sign some kind of deal that takes advantage of, you know, that, that person in you who is the huge comic book fan who has been longing for this your entire life. Remember, you've created this content, you've paid for it to be created, and that you should sign a deal that makes sense with that in mind. You shouldn't be giving away too many of your rights. If any of your rights, you shouldn't be giving away too much of a percentage of the book. Like, like, like 
so anyway, I, I, I just think that there's a lot of predatory publishing deals out there who take advantage of creators who are excited to be on the shelves of the direct market when, especially with what the numbers are right now, I don't know how much of a boon that is to a creator anyway, besides that internal satisfaction that you get of having your book on the shelf in the store. Yeah, I, I definitely, I've heard some stories behind the scenes about some of the predatory practices and some fortunate, um, but something, something you said, uh, in the prior, uh, conversation, we, when it comes to Kickstarter, cause it's something I thought about a lot with certain creators I know and people from friends with behind the scenes and you, from what I've seen, you've put out a few different things through Kickstarter, but like primarily you are doing the white ash universe and you've been pretty consistent with putting that out and then maybe throwing a thing in here in between. And then there's other creators who tend to jump around and it can take years for their books to, to finish. And uh, I understand some of that is artists take time, artists get delayed, stuff like that. But for the most part, all things being even assuming we're living in a perfect world, do you think it's better to go with the route of having the like finish your series and then do the next one? Uh, especially if you're doing like five issue series or something, or do you think it's okay to kind of jump around or it, could that be part of the problem that some creators are seeing right now? So I, I think it comes down to who you are mm -hmm. and what brand you're trying to build. And I hate using a term like your brand and because creators, some creators just immediately like put up their shields. Oh God, like, I don't want to hear about my brand. I don't want to hear about business. I just want to create this art, you know, and I had this idea and I have this idea and I have this idea. And that's, I, I always say too bad. You live in the real world. Right. brand, like. <laughs> yeah, and so, but I, I think it comes back to that is in any marketplace, you need to establish yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and beyond the book, there's the whole factor of, of trust of, you know, in terms of being able to deliver in, in terms of the quality of the content you put out, uh, you know, in, and Kickstarter also has a little bit of who are you as a person, because with a lot of campaigns, like I, you know, I always put myself out as the face of the campaign. So, so this is very much tied into the brand of, of white ash and Glarian. Uh, so, but to answer your question specifically, I think if you have something that's working, lean into that build that up to the point where it's the brand that you can um, jump off from, right? You know, like for me, I did the first arc of White Ash before I did anything else. Then I started trying the game. Then I had the Glarian spinoff. You know, White Ash was continuing, but like there was, it was all, here's White Ash, here's a White Ash spinoff. It's all part of the same universe. So you know that your fans from this will go to this. Um, when I started my fourth series, uh, How I Slept My Way Through College and Other Tales from Freshman Year, I knew it was a very different series. Yeah. It wasn't fantasy. It was grounded. Um, it was set, you know, it's like very different. Uh, and so I didn't have the expectations that the White Ash fan base would jump over to this new book. And I think that's what, as a, as a creator, you have to have is realistic expectations. You know, if, and that's why, it helps to have your core brand because if you know what you're going to get with a white ash campaign or a glarian campaign you can plan your budget for the year around those one or two 
Kickstarters that you know will do X. Uh, and and that, that's what I do is like, I, I know I can make at least this much money from these campaigns, which let me try some other things, but I'm going to keep building the, the core audience around, you know, the moneymaker, but you know, it's also my baby. So like, that's, that makes it easy. Like the thing that I love is the one that takes off, that took off and that people love. But I, I do see like the game is, it's, you know, the fan base of that is starting to grow as well. We just did over a thousand backers in the last campaign for that. Um, and, and how I slept my way through college, you know, that's up to like 700 and something backers. So these campaigns are growing, but you just have to have different expectations. So I think if you jump around too much, it's really artistically fulfilling. And I understand that, but it makes it harder for people to know, oh, that's the person who does that, you know, or, or remember, oh, did you, if you did this book, I like, I don't remember that because you did eight books in between that I didn't like, or weren't my thing. And I don't remember who you are. Right. And, and so like, for me, it was easy when I did the game. It's like from the creator of white ash, we bring you this. And so like, you have that brand that people know in a space that you can use to launch other things. Yeah. I, I, I've seen a few people struggle recently that didn't struggle in the past. And, and one of the things I, I brought up to them was as a, as a consumer on the outside looking in and someone was a little bit more, into the weeds than your average person, but still not as much as like a creator like yourself would be. I it it's rough when your four issue miniseries takes four years to finish. Yes, and that may not be your fault. And uh, I try to be, I try to be understanding while at the same time just pushing reality out there. Like it may not be your fault, but from the outside looking in, it's like why did it take four years? And you did these other projects in between. So like you did, you, you did uh, White Ash and then you did Big Game and, and you did this and, and you did this and that, but you didn't get to uh, White Ash issue two until year two. And my question is why? As a consumer, I feel like other consumers are thinking the same thing. And that's where I always come back to is like what you did. Maybe you should have done White Ash volume one, finished it, proved that you could finish it and then maybe moved on. And, and done all that um that that was that's my thoughts on, yeah, on that. Yeah, i, I think it also depends on how long the issues are if yeah. it's a 20 to 22 page issue and you're only doing one of those a year it becomes harder to build a fan base you, you need to mm -hmm. because it, it, it's something that's read very quickly like like i've taken like the glaring issues have taken longer than i would have liked but i'm working with an artist who's amazing but she's a little slow but every issue of Glarian has been between 36 and 44 pages. So it feels like there's some real content there. Yeah. Um, and then you can also buttress it with, oh, and there's here and there comes another White Ash issue. And then here comes another Glarian thing. And, and so there's always content coming out. And that, that reminds you that there's more of this other content versus something that's a very separate project. So yeah, I, I do think it comes down to engaging your, your core audience making them aware that there's more of this content coming and, and how are you going to build off of that content? And so for somebody getting into Kickstarter today for the first time wants to build their, they want to be the next white ash. Do you think that's still possible? And if so, what's your advice to that person? Uh, so let's, let's assume they have a really good comic. Yes. Because I, I, I think, 
if you're starting from a place where you don't have a really good comic, <laughs> you can always have you can always have dreams of doing things. Um, I think if they have a really good comic that checks the buckets that do well on Kickstarter, uh, over time, I think they can build a large audience, even if they're a creator that no one's heard of before. And you know, they need to start small, have realistic expectations, but just keep putting out content. Um, you know, you need to, it's, it's basically that wash, rinse, repeat approach. Here's this issue. I put it on Kickstarter. Your first one's mostly going to be supported by friends and family and the new backers that, you know, that Kickstarter can bring in. You do that. And then hopefully what you need to also have is a really good hook at the end of the first issue. So all those people who read it want to come back for number two. Um, I, I read a lot of independent comics that have a eh, hook at the end. Like a, it, it needs to be that thing that makes you sick to your stomach that you don't know what happens next. Right. And it's, you know, Brian K. Vaughn is someone who does it really well. Right. You, you want to read that next issue. You, your stomach drops you know, it's coming, you know, that splash page is coming at the end of every single issue of saga or whatever. And it still hits. Right. Um, and, and so being able to do that's really helpful. Uh, and, and, and then getting to know the Kickstarter community who can help support you and lift you up. Because I do think in independent comics, there is definitely a, um, a, a community that wants to support newer creators because we've all been there. We know how hard it is to sort of get started. And if you are a good person, if you're supporting other projects, if you're an active member in the community, people are going to look look out for you. And then ultimately, good content does well. Uh, it, it's the same thing in any industry. As long as you keep doing it, over time, you know, people are going to find you. The fan base is going to build, and you eventually will be able to you know have something sustainable. But you can't sort of come out of the gate and say, "Hey." I'm going to have this $50,000 a campaign Kickstarter in year two. Um, you know, for me, I mean, we're at year, you know, it's like six and a half, year seven of, of building something. And I was looking from the beginning of not being profitable until my third Kickstarter. You know, like everything before that was going to be investment. Um, if, uh, if I hit my goal, if I went over, if I hit the point where I might be breaking even on a campaign, I was going to invest in overprinting. So I had stock. So going forward, when I did white ash one through three, I wasn't having to reprint the first and the second issue. Those were already sunk costs. And so when I was able to offer that bundle at, at a more discounted price, more people jumped on. And so I was making it attractive as we went forward to people to, to sort of check out what I was doing and, you know, and cheaper, and, you know, like even with like Glarian right now, you know, the, the uh, you know, this is over a hundred pages of content and we have a catch up tier, which has, you know, the issues and it's fairly cheap compared to the Kickstarter prices that you would see for something similar because I can sort of amortize those costs because from the beginning, I've looked at it as a long tail business. You know, when you're not cashing out with each Kickstarter, you're rolling back those profits into it. You're making sure what you're doing is sustainable and you have to function as a micro publisher. It can't just be, I'm doing this thing and oh my goodness, I made $2,000 and now I'm going to go, uh, I don't know, go to the CGC store and <laughs> blow all of that. So, 
have you seen uh, so i uh, i've noticed in kickstarter world and i mean i shouldn't even say kickstarter i've noticed in the world that things are more expensive i don't know if you've noticed this yes but uh <laughs> especially in kickstarter world since we're, we're focusing on that um issues got more expensive and i know that printing's got more expensive and this and that have you noticed any i, I don't want to say backlash but uh, has there been less people coming to you has there been some people like uh i used to get every cover but like Yes. Dude, do you see what gas is now? I can only get one. Have you seen that kind of stuff going around? So, so I, I'll be completely frank. This campaign, I've definitely seen people who go digital who would have gone physical before. I've seen people who get one cover who might have gotten two or gotten the bundle that gets all six. So I would say my, my per pledge average is down a little bit. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's about finding what the market will bear. Mm-hmm. And, and and pricing for that, I I don't think depending on depending on the book, I don't think um, Kickstarter books are actually that more expensive if you compare apples to oranges. You know, like like apples to apples. Like if you were to take a Marvel comic, let's just say you know Spider Man whatever, and say I'm only going to print five thousand of these, what are they charging for that book? Right, <laughs> you know, like that that. You know, and I know that's not completely fair because that's Spider-Man, but that would be such a low print run Spider-Man at 5,000 copies, you know, that's going to blow up the price, right? Um, yeah, and- I think with that, I mean, it's, you use Spider-Man, so it's tough, but the bigger book supports the little book right. so they can keep them the same. Right, right. So, yeah. But like that, that's, that's Marvel. But I, I'm like, yeah. even if you, like, so if you go though and you start thinking, okay, there's this, like, say, look, a store exclusive cover. What are you going to pay for that store exclusive cover where they only print two to 300 copies, right? Yep. You know, now most people go in, oh, there's only two or 300 copies. I'm probably going to be okay dropping 15 to $20 for that 20 page book, right? Like, that's, mm-hmm. that's what the market currently is. Now, you look at something like, you know, the latest issue of, of Glarian that I have, there was an early bird price that I think was $16 for it. It's a 44-page book. Um, it's being printed on cardstock covers. It's got um, you know high pound, glossy pages on the interior. So just the print specs are way better than any book that you're going to get in the direct market, unless it's one of those high-end exclusive covers. And you know, and the print run of this. So glaring will be a, a, a larger print run. It'll be over around like a 3,000 print run for the third issue. But the individual variants range from two to 300 copies that we will print of each of those variants. So in that context, $16 for a 44 page book. I mean, if you look at a 44 page book in the market, most are already going to be probably like eight ninety nine yep. to nine ninety nine for a 40 page book. So when you're getting the smaller print run, the better cardstock cover, the bet, you know, like you're getting a better quality product from, from the, the, the tactile sense. Um, that to me, to me, that doesn't feel like that's exorbitant pricing, right? Like it, it feels very much in line with things. So, but still $16 seems like a lot for a comic for some people. Um, what I will also say, and this goes back and we go back to the direct market comics. And, and this is a hard thing for comic fans to hear are way too cheap. Um, except for Marvel and DC. The problem is the market is priced around whatever Marvel and DC price their books for. 
and it's unrealistic expectations for a company that's printing three to 10,000 copies of their book to be pricing it the same as a company that's printing 20 to 100,000 copies of their book because the economics of scale are so different. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you see a book, a, a 22 page book that's $6.99, people are like, oh my God, that's, that's horrible in, in, in the direct market. But honestly, for, you know, like let's just take a company like Vault, which does pretty well, for Vault to make the same profit margin as, um, as Marvel or DC, they would probably have to be going six ninety nine for a same same issue that Marvel would sell at three ninety nine, you know. And if you go to a smaller company, you know, and even Boom, Boom probably should be a, a dollar more than a Marvel or DC book, just based on economics of scale. And if you go to a smaller company, if you go to Ahoy, if you go to you know, like those books really should be seven ninety nine for that same issue if they're going to sustain themselves based on the same profit margin. So. But they can't because that market won't bear it. Um, everything in the direct market has to be kind of the same price point because that's what people are used to, which you know is is, is a really interesting dynamic, and it's not something that you see in other industries, right? I, I don't know. Do you do you drink beer? Are, are you a beer drinker? Yeah. Yeah. So like, but if you go to pick up a pack of Budweiser, do you expect it to be the same price as Sam Adams? Or the same price as you know that microbrew from a pub? You don't, right? And and you're willing to pay more because you know it's a different kind of product, even though they're both beer, even though they're both twelve ounces, right? Same, you know, you could use wine if you want to use wine. Same same thing, and um, you know, so like that's that's how it functions in other markets based on the cost to produce. The person puts the price on, and people either buy it or they don't. But in the direct market, everything seems to be have to be in the same pigeonhole because otherwise the retailers go crazy because the market was built on just Marvel and DC. Yeah. And, and, and so when that's what the market is built on and everything else is kind of shoehorned in, you have to conform to that market. Whereas Kickstarter and some of these other, you know, direct to consumer markets and Zoop and whatever that have sprung up have been built from the ground up to support the price points of those products. Well, and, and people forget, um, I, re I remember a conversation with a friend from years ago, that uh, people forget the ad revenue goes into the big two as well. Some of that yeah. is incestuous, I know, but um, that is a part of it because there was a conversation. I wish I could just pull it up and send it to people, but uh, Tom, I believe it's Tom Brevoort was talking about it. They even tried doing OGNs and I, I have them on that shelf behind me. They're really great. And a lot of people have said, well, why doesn't Marvel just do that? Screw the single issues. And it's because the economics don't work. Yeah, because yeah. the economics of a even a big two book is you need to put out the single issue for two nine nine three nine nine, get the ad revenue off of it, even if it, that's from uh, a lot of times DC Studios or, or Marvel Studios, just sending money downward. It doesn't matter; just the money needs to be there. And then once the book's over, you get the additional revenue from a trade that will get even more of an audience, get into a bookstore and so on and so forth. All that together leads to a successful book, not just single issues, not just a trade or an OGN. And uh, a lot of people forget that it's because when you buy an, an image book or you buy a boom book, there's no ads in those books. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like what you need is you need to pay for your art costs. Yeah. And that's what the single issues often do. I've paid for all the costs to create the book through the single issues now 
when I sell this trade, the only costs I'm paying for are, are printing, right? And, and when you're printing those to scale, those books can drop down to under a dollar a piece, you know, and then if it's $20, you know, and then you're splitting, Marvel is now making $8 per book. And so, yeah, there's a real profit that comes through that way. Yeah. And so you've been doing the white ash books for a while now. And I know in the past when you were working with scout, we had a conversation about uh, specifically film and TV and how that was important to the model to get things options and try to get the next, not necessarily the next big thing, but just the next thing in the people's hands. And that will lift up the brand. Do you feel like that's possible in the Kickstarter realm? So, so yes, um, I, you know, I, I, as someone who lives in Los Angeles, who had a life that predated my, my comics experiences, working in animation and film and things like that, um, I have seen a, a shift in the industry um, where Kickstarter space was something that people ignored in the past. And now there are people from development companies who are going through Kickstarters. So this is definitely because, look, if um, if X production company in Los Angeles can find a gem from a Kickstarter creator who's not affiliated with a publisher, it's going to be a lot cheaper for them to acquire the rights to that book. Because if they reach out to that creator, that creator probably doesn't have an entertainment lawyer. That creator probably doesn't have a producer quote, um, you know. If, if, well, Boom already has their own deal. Um, so depending on, you know, what the studio, you know, what the publisher is, um, if, and by that, I mean, Boom already has distribution deal. They distribute through a certain production company, a certain studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I think they were with, with Sony. Um, I don't know if they still are, but if, like, let's say it's Aftershock, because I think Aftershock has a, a well, maybe not Aftershock. Let's, let's, let's move away from Aftershock. AWA. <laughs> let's go with AWA. Um, you know, AWA, can go to any of the studios with a title and say, Hey, we've got this great new book. Would you guys like to do something with it? And the studios say, yes, AWA already has a producer quote and their producer quote might be $25,000 per episode that they'll get. Now, if it's, um, you know, Travis, we'll go back to Travis, you know, whose books I love. So we can just promote him a little bit. Uh, If, if the same production company, finds one of Travis's books, you know, uh, broke down in four dead bodies and like, I want that one. They can talk to Travis and be like, Hey, Travis, we love your book. We want to option it. They would come up with a, um, an IP licensing fee for Travis. Um, Travis could ask to be put on as a producer. They might say yes. They might not say yes, but if they do, his producer fee is probably going to be three to 5,000 per episode, you know? And so, all of a sudden over time, that's so much cheaper. Uh, and, you know, tra- Travis won't have the same weight as a company that has other things optioned or, or has representation to be able to get a deal done. And so the terms will be more favorable. So I think from the production company side, there are a lot of reasons for them to start looking at Kickstarter, especially as the content has gotten better. And the more big profile, like the fact that, that Good Omens was a Kickstarter, after it was this hit Amazon series is for sure bringing more production development eyes that way. When Brandon Sanderson dropped his 
his Kickstarter campaign and raised $44 million for novels, right? For four novels, which was insane. Biggest Kickstarter of all time. A lot of people in the publishing industry started taking Kickstarter seriously in a way they hadn't been before. So anytime that you have these big breakout things, it gets the public attention. And if there's anything that production companies are looking for, it's cheap way to acquire good content. So I, I know from conversations I've had, they are now looking there. So yes, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I will even say that predating my time at Scout and after my time at Scout, I've had conversations with numerous companies that had nothing to do with um, the Scout version of the book. It was all about, you know, either, you know, either through us reaching out to production companies or production companies reaching out to my manager about, um, you know, the things that I was doing. Yeah, it'll be interesting when we see the first domino fall in that and where it leads. Because like you said, I mean, I know you were a big part of the, or I mean, you were part of the, the writer's strike and you were out there and you're doing your thing. And uh, that led to, that led to good things for creators, especially writers in this case. But it also came with a reality from places like Netflix where like, you were getting things on the cheap for so long and now you have to actually start paying people. And I mean, hopefully from my point of view, that leads to less content because I do think that we got a gluttony of content right now and it's just gotten out of control uh, as a consumer, but it will also mean the Millar stuff is a little bit more expensive guys. Like, and so far we haven't seen the big shift that we wanted from it. Maybe we do go to a, uh, to Pat Shand and, and start talking about making some cheeky comics in the, <laughs> the yeah, Netflix I mean, shows. Look, look like, like, like if, if you look at the old Showtime model, right? Like uh, I feel like the whole cheeky universe would fit very well on like the, you know, the late night Showtime. Um, but, but even, you know, even like Game of Thrones or whatever, like there's plenty of content. I, I think uh, that is adult that will find a home. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I do think that you're going to see, more good creators signing production deals, which then in turn let them do more things in the Kickstarter space. Or if they want to do something someplace else, they can do that as well. Um, but, and then I say, make sure if someone approaches you from a production company, get yourself a good entertainment lawyer or at least a comic book lawyer. And there, and there are ones that you can find. Yeah. So looking out there in the world of uh, comics, I know I know you've had some thoughts on some of the publishers out there. Do you think we're due for a, a big sweeping blow in the direct market with some of these smaller tier publishers that are doing too much or could possibly go away or how do you how do you feel that's that's been going? Well, let me just start by saying, you know, I hope that everyone gets healthy. And yes. the market grows to a place where it can support everyone who's in it right now. That said, if I had to like put my crystal ball hat on, <laughs> I think, um, yeah, you know, yeah. but uh, I, I, I think uh, right now the market got flooded with too much content. There's too many books on the shelves for, um, for people, for the, the pocketbooks of, of people who go into the store to be able to buy the content. Uh, I think, you know, sadly, a lot of stores are closing 
um, right here in Los Angeles. We just lost Heidi Ho, uh, which is one of the oldest comic book shops in all of California. Jeffrey's Comics just closed. Um, in, in New York, Pulp 716 just closed down. Uh, there were a couple of others that just recently closed. There was, uh, I just saw an article about it the other day. It's really sad when, when you're seeing the comic book shops close down, but, but less comic book shops also translate to less outlets to pick up stuff from the publishers. I, I do think that um, it is likely that we're going to see some contraction of publishers and a couple of publishers go away, maybe even some of the bigger ones. Um, you know, I, I don't want to speculate on, on names, but if you look at earnings reports that are published, you can see some publishers are having a hard time. If, um, if you talk to shops in the market, if you go and talk to stores, they can tell you which uh, publishers are selling, which aren't. And when you have entire publishers that are no longer just being put on the shelves, but they're only being ordered to pull through, through stores, like that's going to be really hard. And so I think the publishers that are going to survive are the ones, the, let me rephrase that, the smaller publishers that are going to survive are the ones that either have great content, great products, good, good stories, good creators they're working with, and they shrink their line to focus on promoting those creators. Um, or they do that and they also start exploring the other channels. Uh, I will say that I've had numerous smaller publishers talk to me about consulting in terms of them going to Kickstarter as a place to support what they do. Uh, and because and, and, I, so I think you're going to see more publishers going to Kickstarter, more publishers spending time on whatnot or, or whatever of these other direct to consumer sales channels to try to supplement the income they're losing by the, the comic shops, not ordering as much of their content. But, but ultimately, I, I do feel the market would be a little healthier overall with less books. And yep. whether that means a, you know, publishers shrinking their line and everyone doing that accordingly, according to their size, to, to reach that new equilibrium, or if one or two publishers need to go away and other publishers you know, shrink their output. I, I think that's likely what's going to happen um, because the, the current market isn't sustaining the number of publishers that we have with the number of books they're putting out. Yeah, I, I point to Vault and Mad Cave as my two examples right now of, pub, of smaller publishers doing it right. And I think Vault has a benefit of having bigger name creators um, as a part of their books. And then I think Vault just grew the correct way and started really small and was putting out a couple books and then through things like talent searches found monster hits like nottingham and are now putting out books with you know with Bapose who's working at marvel and all these and then they're getting these great ips in but not over flooding that they just got a couple right now I just think that these two publishers in particular have stood out to me in that realm of ones that have done it correctly, as opposed to just flooding me with 30 books every time I open previews of yeah. stuff that I probably hundred percent like, like, and you're, you're talking about mad cave with, uh, with, um, like they just got flash Gordon. They just, the Pebos and then like, so like that's yeah. Mad cave's great. Vault vault has done some smart things too. I think, when you get funding in and some of these publishers have funding, it's how you spend that money, right? Yeah. How are you promoting 
Vault's tried a lot of things uh, that I think have been interesting. Um, one of their most recent books uh, with the Christios, they gave out, like basically it was free to retailers. <laughs> so, yeah, same with the, the, the Zach Kaplan's, Kaplan book. Yeah, yes. Kaplan's first book, issue yeah. of that book. Yeah. And, and so they're, they're, when they're giving out the first issue for free and you can afford to do that, um, like that's interesting marketing. That's where they're putting their money. But e even then, like if you look at Mad Cave and Vault over the last two or three years, the number of titles they were putting out in a given month were never, you know, over 12 uh, for Vault. And like Mad Cave is more always been in like the four to, to eight range. Yeah. I love and, where Mad Cave sets and that. that. Yeah. They're a couple, but they're quality. Yeah, no, and I, I've talked yeah. to a lot of the people at Mad Cave. They're really smart, uh, and they're trying to grow the company in the right way. Um, and and I think that um, when you look at that, you again, you're doubling down on on the books that you have there. You're trying to figure out how can we maximize the visibility of these books. Can we bring in better creators? And you slowly ramp up. I think if you're a smaller creator and you're still putting out fifteen to 25 books a month you know that's not going to be good for you long term and it's definitely not good for your creator short term um you know and any creator who's at a company that has mostly unknown names in comics that's putting out over 20 books a month that's going to cannibalize its line because the stores are not going to order all of those books and you're, you're as a creator there your numbers are going to go way down yeah so, Charlie, you've been super generous with your time, but yeah. I assume you want to talk about Galarian a little bit. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Like, like, like we, we got, I think, I, you know, depending on when this goes, we'll probably have another 15 to 18 days on, on the Kickstarter campaign. Um, Galarian, just for, for those of you who don't know, it's the origin story of the world's most dangerous elf told through the eyes of a young woman in 1970s New York who's having visions of being this elf warrior from 3,000 years ago. I like to say it's Red Sonja meets Taxi Driver, but with elves and demons. Um, if you like seeing a badass elf, uh, and um, and yes, this is a little bit more adult. Uh, you know, like the White Ash universe is PG-13 with some R-rated characters that come to visit. Glarian's one of those R-rated characters. Uh, this is just, I, I will say that the this origin, like the first couple of pages of the book are some of the most that are in that not safe for work realm. But um, it's inherent to her character because it is kind of a, a um, coming-of-age story. And, and then you can see this is the, the woman, Rachel, who is talking to her psychiatrist about like this, this traumatic event. And, it, and ultimately, it's about these two different women who have just gone through these life-altering tragedies 3,000 years apart and, and how they are connected. And over the course of the miniseries, you will see how these two women come together, how they are connected. And it also pays off a piece of the past of White Ash, which is our other grounded fantasy universe. Think Romeo and Juliet meets Lord of the Rings in rural Pennsylvania. Um, and again, it's it's just part of one gigantic tapestry, a story that we're telling throughout the ages. Um, yeah. And first off, when I was looking through the campaign the other day, uh, the first thing that popped out to me is, damn, that's a lot of preview pages. <laughs> So you really put your money where your mouth is there. Yeah. Well, like my thought on a Kickstarter um, preview section, if you can, and this comes down to what creators can afford, how long your book is. 
I mean, I think that's that's a 15 page preview of the first issue. We're on the third issue right now. The first issue is 40 pages. So there's no 25 pages left in that issue. Um, I like to think of it as if you're watching a TV show and you have that amazing cold open, which is like the, the things that happens before the credits come in, mm-hmm. that kind of hooks you for the episode. Like I'm trying to do that with my Kickstarter pages. Uh, so like my project for the game, I think either had a 10 or a 12 page preview. I want to put enough there. So when you come fresh to what I do, you see it and you know if this is the book for you. You see the quality of the art, you can read the writing, um, you get a sense of the characters, the story, the tone, and it's all right there. And hopefully there's enough of it that's going to hit a point in the narrative that hooks you in. Yeah, and it's, it, I mean, it does benefit that you're doing longer issues. So to do 15 pages yes. is uh, less of the book than if, Right, right, right. If it was a 20-page book <laughs> and I was charging like six bucks for a PDF, you're like, I'm getting a PDF for like four pages? Like, well, what's, what's the deal here? No. Um, yeah, like like the first issue was um, 40 pages. The one we're doing right now is a 44-page issue. Uh, and when I say 44-page issue, that's all story. Uh, if we add any extras or pinups or things, the book will get longer. But there mm-hmm. are 44 pages of story. And that's that's one thing I do love about Kickstarter is it gives me the the luxury of telling longer issues. I'm not confined to that 20-page dynamic. Um, so, so more things can happen, and especially in a story like this where you're jumping back and forth between the two time periods and you have parallel narratives running. Uh, I like to have more space to be able to, to tell and show actions that um, you know, are commenting on each other. And to do that in, um, in a way that doesn't feel rushed, that feels it's intrinsic. The, the pace of the book is intrinsic to the pace of the narrative that you want to tell. Sometimes you need more pages. Yeah. I uh, recently came uh, gods came out from Marvel and I was talking about that on the show where it's a big book. Like it's mm-hmm. a lot of pages and it felt it is a full story in one page or in one uh, issue. And what was great about that is having that all there I felt so that was literally a quick insight into me is I try to read anywhere from three to five comics in a night. That's not always possible, but like, that's usually my goal. And I sat down that night and read that and was just like, that's it. That's the book I read tonight because yeah. it was so deep and intrinsic as opposed to your average 22 issue comic where it's very digestible in and out. And it sounds to me, that's what Galarian's doing. Uh, for sure and and i will say like uh you know i've done a lot of writing in my career and from from comics to to, to other medium and i i do this story in particular has been one of the most fulfilling to tell but also one of the most challenging structurally to make it work because again like i said it's two different parallel stories you're trying to find the right points to go back and forth between the stories, you're trying to pace the narratives of each so they're working in concert with the other and, um, and and make each of those stories dynamic in a way that the reader is not like, ugh, it's this, I'm, I'm going quickly through this story because I want to get back to Glarian or, you know, like, oh, the Rachel story is so much more interesting and, and, and just trying to make sure it balances itself. Um, so, so as a writer, it's been a really rewarding book to write. And, and I would say this issue... As much as I've enjoyed the first two, it was my favorite one to write at this point. It's 
It's the funniest. It's got the most action. It's the sexiest for people who like that. Um, but it's a lot is happening right now because the, the, the first two issues we were really kind of teasing a lot of the connection. And here the worlds are overlapping a little bit more in this third issue. So um, I get to do a lot of fun things. And uh, working with Romina is also just amazing. You know, any, anytime that you have an artist that constantly pluses what you do, mm-hmm. that, that's, that's where I like to work with. And uh, I'm very fortunate. That's what I get to do. And I, I remember from a previous conversation, I, I'm pretty sure this was you. So correct me if I'm wrong here. Yeah. But uh, talking about having the, the sexy scenes in there and having the lead, both the lead characters being female, uh, it was important for you for the artist to also be a woman. Has has that worked out the way you wanted it to? Do you feel like she's added that um, yeah, femininity think, to it that makes it work? I, I think it comes down to, sometimes it comes down to camera placement mm-hmm. for intent um, and just how a scene is being handled. Uh, so so for certain sequences, like anything that's choreography, if, it, if it's a sex scene, if it's a fight scene, um, I'm a little bit more hands-off in terms of the direction because I think those things need to flow on the page. And so like, like there, there's a scene in this one, you know, I said a little bit sexier, but there's, there's actually two parallel sex scenes that are taking place in this next issue. Um, and, and we're cutting back and forth between the two of them. And, and, and part of the intent is to show the different dynamics in terms of how sexuality impacts both of their lives. But even though that they have very different perspectives at the end, they kind of both end up in the same place. It's so like it's, but that's the kind of thing where I'll be like, okay, we have these three or four key panels that we need to hit in this two page spread, but the rest is up to you. Um, You know, and show what you want, handle this in the way that you think is the most appropriate for the scene. Um, And and so I, I, I do think anytime, if you want to be respectful, in terms of what you're doing, if you're not trying to be gratuitous, you know, like, look, there's, there's plenty, if you go to Kickstarter, there's plenty of not, not safe for work books that are selling because they are not safe for work books. And I'm not saying that there aren't people who buy this book because that's not what they're, you know, because that's not their main focus. Like, oh, book, here's another book that goes into not safe for work content. But if you look, you know, we look at our covers and you can scroll through, like, there's no nude covers. You know, most, most of the covers are, um, you know, like, I love this one, you know, like, it, it's great. Like and, and the one that we have in the background from Skylar is is insane. Uh, it's like this beautiful, beautiful like uh, the the one like the, on the background of this. Um, this uh, was screen. one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah, Luca's great. Yeah, uh, you know, like, like there's like this, we had the fun cosplay covers that we did for the shoot, um, and then yeah, like this this is the one I was talking about. So like you know, these are not overly sexualized covers for the most part. You know, they are showing dis- different aspects of the creator because I don't want to be advertising this book. You know, I don't want people to be buying this book because you're just looking for a not safe for work book. I want people who are buying this book, you know, because you love the character Glaren, because you want to learn more about her origin story, because you want to, you know, see more parts of the White Ash universe. Um, that said, you know, we're going to go into some content. It's like Game of Thrones. Look, there, there was plenty of nudity in Game of Thrones. And sure, that's why some people watch the show, right? Yep. But it's not like you can't find nudity everywhere on the internet. Um, 
you came back to Game of Thrones because you love the content. And some of it was trying to, to shock you. Some of it was trying to titillate you. Some of it was trying to excite you in different ways as part of that universe. And, and, and so for me, if it's organic to the story, it should be there. You know, I, I don't want to limit the narratives that I'm telling based on trying to hit a certain age rating. You know, we're just going to tell the story that needs to be told. So, Yeah, what I loved about each cover... And then even into the book, when I was I was looking through the preview pages and everything, she's so we're we're all in this world creatures, with some exceptions, obviously, but creatures that have sexual habits, and it's a part of our life and it's part of our story. And so there's definitely a place, like you said, in storytelling for that. Uh, doing it right is very tough. I think movies and TV do it very poorly a lot, but. What I liked about it was at no point did I see her in any of these images as an object. And as a matter of fact, I specifically used this background because A, it was one of my favorite covers. But B, I love the imagery of her there in the flames, just looking badass, ready to ready to fight, ready to go, ready to protect and do what she needs to do. And I didn't think that even with the cosplay cover that you could look at and say it's a cosplay cover and it's a lot of cosplay uh, photo shoots can be used to be titillating. And that's how some of those cosplay people make their money and what good on them for what they do. But even that one, it seemed like the focus was on this character is a warrior. This character is someone who can hold their own. Well, and, and to that end, like uh, Shana Feely, who is the photographer, uh, this woman, um, she did all the costuming for it. She cast the models. She went off and did it and just sent me photos. So I was like, <laughs> it was a wonderful thing where it was like a whole, you know, woman led team going off and doing it and coming back with pictures of, you know, of glaring. And it was like, I loved it. And she did multiple costumes, work with different models. And so that, that was for me, it was wonderful. But even like, um, you know, like the opening scene where there's a lot of nudity in the opening scene. I remember early on, I was talking with Romina, who's the artist. And I was like, should she maybe throw something on? And, and she wrote back to me. She's like, I don't think she would take time in a battle to put stuff on. And I don't think she cares. And I'm like, you're right on both counts. Right. And, and, and so like mm-hmm. when, when your artist is like, no, no. Like this, this woman doesn't care. She's in a battle. She's fighting. She doesn't care if anyone sees any of her bits because it doesn't matter to her, you know, like, like, and, and that's also the core of the character. Like there's this, it, it's part of like the, the story that's going on here is like that arrogance of youth when you are 19, 20, 21, and you feel like you are the center of the universe. And that extends to your sexuality, extends to just your persona. And you feel like you can do no wrong. And, and, and so we're coming in on that moment in the beginning here in, in those opening pages where, you know, like this demon's erupting and like she doesn't care because she knows she's glaring and she's going to take this thing out and save the day. And then things don't quite go that way. And like, you know, and, and so that changes the trajectory of her life. And I think, you know, like that, that aura of invulnerability going away is something that we all experience at some point. 
and it shapes, you know, and how it goes away, when it goes away, shapes the path of our life going forward. And, you know, like, and so this is for her, it's, it's a coming of age story as that, you know, that, that aura is pierced and she has to regroup and rebuild who she is going forward based on that. And, you know, and like, will that moment come back thematically? Probably, you know, that's, that's the kind of writer I am. So like, you know, like <laughs> that choice in the beginning, maybe will be able to be revisited later on and we can see her growth, like things like that, you know, like these are important key moments in the lives of these characters. And that's where we're coming in. And there's a moment in time where they're both dealing with the aftermath of, of things going horribly wrong. Definitely. So, yeah, I just, I, I, I'm really enjoying everything I'm seeing from the book. It just looks, I mean, obviously I know you, so I know it's very thoughtful and that you've, you've done a lot behind the scenes to make sure that it's the intent is there to the best of your ability and all that. And I love seeing the, the white ash universe kind of growing and growing as it goes. I mean, I remember talking to you back in the scout days and where it was, and then to see your campaign as we sit here today, recording at over a thousand backers and $3,500. Like that's, that's amazing. And you still have how many days? 17 to go. So when people are listening to this, it'll be about 11, 10 days to go. Um, have you reached any like stretch goals? Do you, do you do that kind of thing on, on yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we've already unlocked one stretch goal. I think the first stretch goal was, uh, we're doing a poster of the A cover, 11 by 17 poster of the A cover, because I kind of wanted to get rid of some of the logos so you could see everything that Romina had done, because there's a lot going on in that A cover where you can see like the two worlds coming together. Um, you know, like the, with the dancers behind, so like there's going to be an 11 by 17 poster of this that's going to be in uh, um, every package. Uh, we are uh, about to unlock, and I'll, I'll tell you because we're, we're here and by the time this has dropped, um, we're going to do a chrome foil cover of uh, Skylar's cover, which is the one in the background. And uh, we're going to be randomly giving that away to five people who have backed the campaign. And then it will also be available as an add-on, a limited number, probably somewhere in the realm of only 50 that will print up um, that people can add. And I think that's a beautiful cover to have as a um, chrome uh, foil. You know, it's just really going to pop yeah. with all the, the sparks and the flames. Yeah, that one's um, going to work really well in that format. Yeah. And, and so, like, but yes, I, I have plenty of stretch goals that we will be rolling out. Um, you know, that, that hopefully by the time that this campaign is live, a few more of them will have been unlocked. Uh, I always like to reinvest back in, in the things that we're making. And, you know, if we ever do like a new cover, uh, we also, rather than just have it as an add-on, I give it away randomly to some people who backed it. So it's one of those things where if you back things, sometimes you get this extra cover. And if you really want it, you can also buy it too. That's awesome stuff. Uh, what about add-ons? Has there been, is there any like special add-ons in your, in your campaign or? So, so we have, I mean, like with all my campaigns, you can always catch up on, on anything. Uh, so we have lots of, um, you know, catch up packs as, as standard tiers. Uh, in terms of add-ons, we have the, the white ash trade paperback. We have the Glarian short and deadly hardcover. Um, usually what I do is after the Kickstarter campaign through backer kit, 
I have everything available from the White Ash catalog. So if there's any variant covers that you're looking for previous campaigns, uh, we have pins, we have um, we have custom decks of White Ash playing cards. We have you know everything in the universe. I put that all there because right now, as much as Kickstarter has done to work on their interface, their post-campaign fulfillment tools are not still where they need to be. Oh. Um, and so that's where I go to a place like BackerKit, which helps me create package groups. And they're like, okay, there are 75 backers that get these things. So you can just pack those boxes and then stick the labels on them and ship them out. Whereas Kickstarter just gives you a giant spreadsheet and you have to do all that work on your own. And so, you know, so I leave a lot of the add-ons to BackerKit where it can be just organized better. Interesting. Yeah, I got to imagine at, at this point, as, as far as the series has gone in terms of the bigger White Ash universe, you're like it, <laughs> the amount of different packages has got to be crazy at this point. It is even crazier. <laughs> still, I do all of it myself. Um, you know, I really should be outsourcing and uh, it's something that I'm looking into or at least getting my kids old enough so I can outsource it to them. Yeah, child um, labor. That's exactly. <laughs> um, but you know, like, like, will I mean, I will in the next three weeks be sending out another thousand packages for um, you know our glaring short and deadly hardcover that was a previous campaign. So like, that's a lot of mailing to do. Um, and yeah, you know, when when you look at the backer kit, does the you know you hit the button, it's like create package groups. I'm like, okay, two hundred and seventy five different configurations. Yeah. You know, and like your first five or six configurations, like 150 of these, 200 of these. And then you have like, I don't know, 75 that are completely unique. <laughs> and that's, that's where it takes time to, to create all those packages. Yeah. That's crazy, man. So I mean, not that I'm complaining because, you know, like when, when you have these big campaigns, obviously it means there's a lot of revenue coming in and not every creator can do that. So I would never complain about the you know the number of backers or packages that I have to to mail out because that just means people are buying things. These are good problems to have. The best problems. Complaints that we love to hear. That's yes. what it is. <laughs> so, Charlie, I mean, is there anything else you want to add about the campaign before we we do our little send off? Uh, no, I mean, just like look again, we're running till November fifteenth. So you know, check it out uh, if you want to get caught up on the White Ash universe. We have plenty of tiers there. We even have a White Ash Universe collection where you can get everything White Ash, everything the game, and uh, our other series, How I Slept My Way Through College and Other Tales from Freshman Year. Oh, and we do have um, a couple of gift boxes left. And these are gift boxes that you can mail to your fantasy-loving friends, and they will ship out in time for the holidays. They will ship out the first week in December to make sure that they get to places. So people can open them, put them under their tree, put them by their candles or wherever you put in your uh, holiday boxes. And uh, yeah. So what better gift to give than the gift of white ash? Yeah. Like, that's what I think. Uh, <laughs> and they come in beautiful gift boxes, but, uh, but in general, comics are a great gift. Yes, definitely. Uh, I, although I've tried with my sister a few times and it always lands flat. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but for Chris, they are a great gift. Oh, trust. Look, look at behind me. I know. We, we like, should all send Chris <laughs> gift boxes of comics. Just saying. If you're watching this channel and you I, haven't sent Chris a gift box yet, now's the I, time. 
I'm not going to complain. I mean, I'll say that. Uh, so Charlie, uh, once again, been super generous with your time. So I appreciate it. But before yeah, we no. take off, uh, I know that you're like me and you make terrible life decisions, like spending time on Twitter and whatnot. So where can yes. people follow you on those places? So on um, the platform formerly known as Twitter, I am under Charles Stickney. Uh, I also have a Charlie Stickney on Blue Sky. There is a White Ash Comics on uh, Twitter as well. Uh, and you can also follow White Ash Comics on Facebook and on Instagram. And everybody out there listening and or watching, check those show notes for links to the uh, Galarian Issue 3 campaign uh, and all the other cool stuff that I can find that Charlie's done. So, Charlie, thanks so much for spending the time here tonight talking to me. It's been awesome. And uh, I, I look forward it. to the next time. Yeah. Talk soon. Thank you so much. <laughs>